please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 12. We are halfway through the book of Revelation. So uh, it's a, a wonderful thing to be halfway through the tribulation. Um, still got another half to go. Revelation chapter 12. You know, I love a great story. When you see some of the dynamics of a good story, there's always that tension that exists, often between good and bad, between light and darkness. And in many of the stories, what fascinates me is uh, some of the storylines involve prophecy. And when you look at an ancient prophecy, sometimes people forget the prophecy. Sometimes they wonder, well, was the prophecy really true? Or is that just a tradition, something that was long in the past and is forgotten because it ought to be forgotten? And I would submit to you that in all of those storylines, there's a villain, there's a hero, and the prophecy often tells you the outcome before it happens. And part of the tension of the story is when you look and you see that, oh wow, it doesn't look like maybe things are going to work out. As a matter of fact, things are getting a lot worse and then boom, all of a sudden, things get better. Now what we find in the Word of God is not just a story. It's not a fiction that somebody made up. This is a glimpse into the purpose and the plan of God. And when we look into Revelation chapter 12, we see a passage of Scripture that is often difficult for people to comprehend because of some of the imagery that's used in this. It's also difficult to understand because chapter 12 doesn't necessarily fall chronologically. As we've been studying chapters 6 through 11, we've seen a series of events and they're chronological in order, but then we come to chapter 12. And all of a sudden, John leaves the chronological set that he has, and he moves into a sidebar, a discussion, if you will, about some figures that play prominently in the last seven years uh, that, that the Scripture addresses, the seven years of the tribulation here in the book of Revelation. So what I want us to do this morning is look at this passage of Scripture that really talks about two kingdoms, the kingdom of the Lord and the kingdom of the world. Now, if you remember, in chapter 11, we saw the 15th verse, and when the angel blew the seventh trumpet, there was a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever. What we find in chapter 12 is really a passage that drills down on this idea of there being a kingdom of the world, but also the kingdom of the Lord, and how the kingdom of the Lord has already overcome the kingdom of this world. And that's what I want us to see this morning as we look at this text. Now, when we begin this passage, it starts to talk about this conflict that exists between the kingdom of the Lord and the kingdom of the world. And he begins by talking about a figure that many of us are familiar with, and that figure is Israel. They are the covenant people of God. 
And it talks about how they are persecuted. Look at what it shares with us. A great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, we're going to pause there with the first two verses. And you're probably saying, Pastor, what in the world is this talking about? A woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars. And what in the world does this represent? And what we have to do is go to Scripture to understand the symbolism that's being shared here in this text. When we look in the Old Testament... We find Joseph sharing a dream that he had with his brothers. And in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph shares that dream with his brothers and with his mother and with his father. And what he shares with them was a picture of Israel, and it was a picture of stars and sun and moon. Now, the story of Joseph was that he was the sun and the stars were bowing down to him. He shared that with his brothers, and his brothers were not real happy about it. As a matter of fact, when we look at it, even his parents weren't real thrilled with what he had shared in the way of that vision. As a matter of fact, when we look at Genesis chapter 37, this is the response that the fathers and the father and his brothers had, and it says this, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This saying was a picture of Israel, and what I believe is here in Revelation chapter 12, John has picked up on that symbol. It was part of the vision, but it was a part of the vision that John would have understood. And so what John is talking about here, what God was revealing to him is Israel is going to be a key player during this time of tribulation. When it talks in verse 2 about her pregnant and crying out and birth pains and the agony of giving birth, when we look in Scripture, so often the imagery of labor pains is a prominent picture of pain and suffering, but then the blessing that follows. And certainly that's what we see here in Revelation chapter 12 as it's describing Israel. During the tribulation, there will be great suffering when it comes to the people of Israel. And as a matter of fact, when we look historically at Israel, what do we see? We see a nation that has suffered persecution. We see a nation that has suffered at the hands of the foes of God throughout history. But when it comes time for the seven years of tribulation that the book of Revelation really focuses on, what we're going to see is Israel will suffer even more. So this is a time of intense suffering, and it's something that is being prophesied about this seven years of tribulation. Something else. We're going to drop down to the sixth verse. But when we come to verse 6, we see something else about Israel and its suffering. When John talks about this move that will take place, there's, there's going to be terrible persecution that's going to come upon Israel. He goes on to say this, And the woman, again referring to Israel, fled into the wilderness where she was 
uh, where uh, she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now, here's another insight into what's going to go on with Israel. The first half of the tribulation, three and a half years, Israel will not suffer as she will in the second half of the tribulation. And we're going to see why that is as we move through this text. But the bottom line is, Satan is going to greatly intensify persecution against the nation Israel. Really, when we look at the nation Israel, in our lifetimes, we have seen terrible persecution that has been brought against the people of God. As we look into this text, we're going to see why that persecution has taken place. There's a principal mover behind the persecution that the people of Israel have suffered. And we're going to see that that person is Satan. Now, let's move into the next part of this passage. As we come to verses 3 and 4, there is a shift from Israel to another key figure, and that key figure is Satan. Look at verse number 3. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And he swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, we know that this is Satan because look at verse 9. Verse 9 directly identifies this dragon, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this figure that pursues Israel is Satan. And when we look at the Word of God here, we see certain descriptions about Satan and the ones that will be in league with Satan during the tribulation. For instance, again, the third verse. This great dragon has seven heads and ten horns, and on his head, seven diadems. Now, diadems, as you know, are crowns. What is being pictured for us here? What's being pictured for us in this passage is Satan in league with some rulers on earth. We know this because the book of Daniel describes a similar vision. Look at what Daniel said. As for the ten horns, out of the kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings, so that means seven, right? And he shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall... Think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand a time, times, and a half time. Now, all of this language can be very confusing. Let's try and unpack what it's saying. There are going to be some sort of earthly leaders who will be pawns of Satan during the tribulation, and Satan will give direction to them as to how they are to lead the world. Now, a lot of attempts have been made to try and identify these kings and these crowns and all of the things that are described here in Revelation chapter 12. And I have to tell you, as someone who has been looking into prophecy for more years than I care to count, a lot of those identifications have just been wrong. 
People have embarrassed themselves by saying we know who these people are because they try to shoehorn nations and people into the scripture that really don't fit. But they like to say, I'm smart enough to have figured it out. And as a result, they're very embarrassed. Here's what we do know. There are going to be some kings that will be guided and directed by Satan himself who will arise during the tribulation into prominence. And they will be basically pawns of Satan that will have intense leadership roles in this world. That's what the text is teaching us. Now, this description of Satan that goes on after this mention of these rulers, these leaders, it goes on to say, look at verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars and cast them to the earth. Now, let's unpack what that's talking about. Satan, as many of you know, was not created an evil angel. Satan was created a ruling, leading angel. But as we look in Scripture, we see that Satan rebelled against God. Pride took over Satan. And as a result, Satan claimed that he could defeat God, that he was greater than God, that he would become like God. And as a result, God judged Satan for trying to usurp his position. But here's the amazing thing about Satan. Not only was Satan judged for his rebellion toward God, but he persuaded other angels to come along with him in his rebellion. And what the scripture reveals here is this. One third of the angels rebelled with Satan against God. Now that is hard to fathom, isn't it? It shows the charisma, the chutzpah, <laughs> but also the deceptive power of the evil one, that he could deceive one-third of the angels who stand in the presence of God and worship him to come with him. It also shows us that angels are those with free will, choosing to rebel against God. So a lot of facts come out in this discussion that John gives us about what happened with Satan and with these fallen angels who we often refer to as demons. This is what Satan does. He inspires these fallen angels to come after him or with him. And then look at the middle of the fourth verse. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. Now, some have looked at this passage in verse 4 and said, well, this must be Mary because it's beginning to discuss um, the, the birth of Jesus, as we'll see that it transitions. I would submit to you that it's bigger than just Mary. It's a discussion more about Israel, who is the race or the people group or the covenant people of God that Mary came through, that she descended from. And so it's really expanded beyond just Mary. It's expanded to the whole of Israel. And what it's saying here is that Satan has tried to crush and wipe out Israel. And this gives us insight into why the Israelites have been so maligned and so persecuted throughout their existence. 
Satan's ploy, his strategy, has been right along, I know I can't overcome God, but perhaps I can overcome his plan, his program. If I can wipe out the people of God, then I can frustrate the plans and the work of God. So throughout history, Old Testament, New Testament, he has tried to wipe out the people of God. But more than that, Satan threw everything he could at keeping the people of Israel from producing the Messiah. He pursued the woman before she could give birth. Why? Because if I can frustrate the plan of God and not allow him to provide the Savior then I can frustrate all of his plans. Didn't work. But that was his ploy. That was his plan. So here in the book of Revelation, we see this truth revealed to us. We see the Word of God breaking down for us exactly what was taking place. Well, as we all know, the people of Israel produced the Savior. And that brings us to the next point, verse 5. Christ has overcome satanic opposition. Look at the fifth verse. She, referring again to Israel, gave birth to a male child. Now, look at how this male child is described. One who is to rule all nations with an iron, a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So here's the picture. The Lord Jesus Christ came. He will be the king, the ruler of the world. That's what it means. He will rule the world with a rod of iron. In other words, absolute authority over the entire world. This is the long view of what will happen to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the interim, between his birth... And his reign, we have the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, the burial, the resurrection, and then the ascension of Christ where he was called up to the Father's side. This same Jesus is returning again in the body just as he ascended and he will establish his kingdom on earth. That is in a sentence the story of Jesus. This is who he is. This is what Israel produced, but this is why Satan so vehemently opposes Israel and seeks its destruction. By the way, I believe that he still continues to seek to wipe out the children of Israel and will, during the tribulation, redouble those efforts because Israel will be a part of the kingdom, people of God, the covenants, the promises of God are encapsulated with Israel. So if he can remove them as a people, then he frustrates the plan and the work of God. Now, continue in the passage. As we look at this 12th chapter, continue to unfold, we come to the 7th verse. And in the 7th verse, what we find is this. There are some contrasting outcomes for the kingdom of the Lord and the kingdom of the world. We have an interesting insight into what Satan does currently and some of the limitations that he will experience in the future. Verse 7 says this, 
Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Now we know that the dragon is Satan. And it goes on to say, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, let me just share this. The Word of God teaches us that there is an unseen world in the spirit realm where war goes on consistently. In the book of Daniel, Daniel mentions a couple of times where an angel of God was going to the rescue of the people of God, but he was stopped by warring with Satan. Here, we find that there is a heavenly war between Michael and his angels and Satan and the demons, and Satan and the demons are defeated, and here's the idea, they are actually exiled from heaven. Now, some of you may be saying, now, wait a minute, pastor, you mean Satan has access to heaven? We know that he does. When you look in the book of Job, chapter 1, there's the story of Job and the story of how God is interacting with Satan as Satan is in heaven accusing Job before God. Satan, at this time, can come and speak against the people of God. In fact, as we'll see in this text, he's referred to as the accuser of the brethren. But what this is saying is, during the tribulation, Satan will be thrust from heaven, exiled from heaven, and he will be granted access to heaven no more. The text goes on in the ninth, eighth and ninth verses to say this. He was defeated. There was no longer a place for him. Verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this is the imagery that we have in this text. After this heavenly battle, Satan and his demons will be consigned to the earth and not into the heavenly realms anymore, a part of his judgment. Well, how do the people in heaven respond to that? As we come into the next part of the passage, we find that there is a celebration in heaven when this takes place. And by the way, can't you imagine that that's the case? Imagine being a follower of God. Oh, Satan again. I'm so tired of listening to him. Imagine finally seeing God exile him from heaven. Verse 10 says this, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren or the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, what we see here is Satan is right now, accusing the brethren. Every time one of us sins, Satan's there, did you see what he just did? And he calls himself a Christian. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who speaks in our defense, we're told, in the Gospel of John. But Satan is constantly before the throne of God accusing us. 
at this point during the tribulation, he'll be gone. No longer in heaven. And all of heaven rejoices at him being thrown out. <coughs> now look at the 11th verse. <coughs> and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved their lives even unto death. Now, what this is talking about is the fact that Satan, excuse me, I'm grabbing a sip of water, the fact that, that Satan was defeated, how? Not by Michael and his angels, not by any person. They were defeated by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' death on the cross devastated Satan and his plan and his purpose. Also, the testimony of the Word of God. It is the Word of God that overcomes Satan. Satan can do nothing to withstand the Word of God. So this promise of victory by the blood of the Lamb, by the testimony of God's Word, and the rejoicing of heaven shows us an important truth concerning Satan. He is already defeated. God has defeated him. But we will see this play out yet in the future. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says this, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. This is what heaven does as they see God's plan unfold. This is a part of the celebration of light as darkness is defeated. But then we come to the next point, and that is there's a catastrophe on the earth due to Satan's wrath. Look at verse 12, all heavens rejoicing. Look at the next sentence in verse 12. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. This shows us the wickedness of Satan. Here's the picture. Heaven is rejoicing because the plan of God is unfolding. But Satan sees the God who is over him, who is in authority, and he sees his plan succeeding. So what does he do? He comes and he says, I will wreak destruction on the earth. That which is precious to God because I know my time is short. Do you see the wickedness of what he's doing? If I'm going down, I'm taking as many people as I can with me. That's wickedness. That's evil. That's why heaven rejoices. But that's why heaven will also watch as Satan unleashes his rage on the earth because of his defeat. Last part of the passage. The conquest of Satan to destroy the kingdom of the Lord. Look at verse 13. Right after it talks about him knowing that his time is short, we come to the 13th verse and it says this, And when the dragon, or Satan, saw that he was thrown down to the earth, what does he do? He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now, we've seen how Satan has persecuted Israel. But when he sees that his time is short, he will redouble his efforts. 
He will try with everything that he has to bring about the destruction of Israel. And so what we find is with his concerted efforts to try and destroy Israel, God's promise to Israel was that they would reign with him in the kingdom and live in the promised land, which has not been fulfilled yet. So what does God do? God stops Satan. What we find is that Satan cannot overcome God's protection of the people of Israel. Look at what this text goes on to say in the next part of this passage, verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Now, let's talk about what's being expressed here. The wings of an eagle coming on a woman, what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that God will deliver Israel from the attacks of Satan. This imagery of having eagle's wings is an Old Testament figure of speech that is often employed by the prophets to describe God's deliverance. For instance, <coughs> in the book of Exodus, we find this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, Every Israelite knew that God wasn't saying they would literally sprout wings out of their back and, and fly out of Egypt. He knew, they, they knew that this was a figure of speech, a way of saying that God would deliver them. It's the same here in the book of Revelation. What it's saying is God will supernaturally protect Israel from all of the efforts of Satan to try and destroy them. Because God is true to His Word. He is the faithful God we can count on him. And you know, that's what I hope you're taking away from this passage of Scripture this morning. When we look at the evil around the world, we can become overwhelmed by the evil around us. But there is a good God who has a plan that's unfolding, and he is greater than the evil. He has already defeated it. And when we have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we are victors as well because of Christ Jesus. Here is Satan trying with everything he has to frustrate the work and the plan of God, and he cannot, because God is greater than Satan. Look at the effort that he expends. Verse 15, the serpent poured out like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured into, out, out from his mouth. Now again, I don't think this is a literal thing that's going to happen. I don't think that you're going to see a figure uh, vomit gallons of water to drown Israel. It's imagery. It's a picture for us. But what it's saying is this. Although Satan tries his best to destroy Israel... God will protect Israel. God will see to its deliverance. Satan will not prevail over the people of God. Last part of this passage is quite disturbing. What we find is Satan pivots. 
He's going after Israel. God keeps him from fulfilling his plan. So what does he do? He pivots. And he pivots to those described in verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Now, who in the world are the rest of her offspring? Out of Israel came the Savior. And because of Israel, we have those who find Jesus and come to Him through salvation. Now, this is true of the church, which I believe will have been raptured before the tribulation. But during the tribulation, there are also non-Israelites who will come into a personal relationship with God. And so here's the picture. Satan is doing all that he can to crush Israel. He's unable to do so because God forbids it. He stops it. So Satan pivots and says, I will now go after any believers, any followers in, in, of, of Jesus Christ. If I can't get them, then I'll get them. And there will be a terrible persecution that takes place on the earth for the people of God who find God during this time. The scripture describes it in this way. He went to make war with the rest of the offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So this is what the people who find faith during the tribulation will face. The wrath, the anger of Satan, while the rest of the world experiences the wrath of God. They are saved from the wrath of God, but they will experience the wrath of Satan as he seeks their demise. A lot is shared with us in this text about Satan, about his plan for the world, about his character, about his wickedness, but a lot more is shared about the faithfulness of God, the provision of God. Imagine if we didn't have the cross. Imagine if there weren't the provision that God made in Jesus Christ by His blood being shed for us that we might find forgiveness, a right relationship with the Father, that we might be delivered from the terrible outcome that's coming upon Satan and all of those who follow him. God made a way. God made a provision for us. That provision is Jesus Christ. And he is greater than Satan and all of his evil. All of his designs to frustrate the work and the plan of God. Frustrated by the one who will reign the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but as I look at this world, I can see the setup for all that's described here in the book of Revelation. It's sort of like the pieces of furniture on the stage are in place. All we have to do is open the curtain and the play will unfold. As we look at this, it could bring great fear and consternation. And really, I mean, if you can read the book of Revelation and not find it fearful, there's something wrong with you. These are terrible things that will be visited upon man. But as terrible 
as those are, God is good. And God is better. And God has made a way for us to find deliverance. My encouragement to you is this. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, today is the day to make that commitment to Him, to trust Him as your Savior, to go to the one whose blood defeated Satan. Find Him. Trust Him. Find that forgiveness and right relationship with God that God so wants you to experience. And also remember this. We have family. We have friends. We have neighbors who need to hear the gospel, who need to come to that saving faith in God to avert these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for making it so clear to us what is in store for this world because they have rejected the author of life. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that if there is one who does not know you as their Savior, that this morning uh, they would come to me or to Dan or to TJ or any one of us and ask how they can know that they have right standing with you and that you will transform their hearts and their lives. And then, Heavenly Father, I also pray uh, that, that as we continue our study in the book of Revelation, that you will open our eyes to these truths. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.